This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A congressional inquiry into the possible cause of the Maui wildfires began this morning in Washington, D.C., as we heard in the headlines. Uh, HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote was up early tracking the hearing and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Lawmakers are looking into this question of did the electrical grid play a role in causing the fire that destroyed Lahaina? That's what U.S. representatives want to know. And that's why they met at 4 a.m. our time (laughs) in order to ask some of these questions of the head of Hawaiian Electric, the Hawaii State Energy Office and our Public Utilities Commission. As you might expect, a lot of the questions that lawmakers had were for Hawaiian Electric and the actions that it took on the day of the fire. So Hawaiian Electric CEO Shelley Kimura put forward this timeline of events. On that day of fire at 6.30 a.m., what I will refer to as the morning fire appears to have been caused by Hawaiian Electric power lines that fell in high winds. The Maui County Fire Department promptly responded to this fire. They reported that by 9 a.m. it was contained. After monitoring it for several hours, the fire department determined the fire had been extinguished. They left the scene in the early afternoon. At about 3 p.m., a time when all of Hawaiian Electric's power lines in West Maui had been de-energized for more than six hours, a second fire, the afternoon fire, began in the same area. The cause of that afternoon fire that spread to Lahaina has not been determined. So we've heard this sentiment reiterated um, by Hawaiian Electric and then in many of the lawsuits that are ongoing that we still don't exactly know that cause of the fire. But U.S. representatives were not satisfied with that explanation that Shelley Kimura gave in her opening remarks. And the chair of the subcommittee, Morgan Griffin, Griffith of Virginia, really probed Hawaiian Electric into exactly how the utility reacted in the hours leading up to the fire. What was your, yes. what was your strategy? And were there people who were awake uh, all night monitoring this storm to see what we could do? What's going on? Tell, yep. tell us and the American people what was going on that morning and why you didn't de-energize earlier. Those decisions were made uh, years before as part of a plan. And the, as, as part of our protocols. And so I'm trying to help you understand what our protocols are in that kind of situation. So in 2019, our team started developing a wildfire mitigation plan. And based on what they had learned of the plans in California, including their preemptive shutoff programs, mm-hmm. they determined- That would be our, the PSPS. Mm-hmm, okay. PSPS, uh, that that wasn't the appropriate fit for Hawaii. Interesting. So Hawaiian Electric did say that it is re-examining those protocols in light of the events that occurred in August on Maui. And they reaffirmed that the lines were de-energized by 7 a.m. But we don't actually know exactly what happened. And so in the congressional hearing today, there was a question from some lawmakers, you know, is this premature to have this discussion to to bring forward these votes to testify when the attorney general's investigation, for instance, is still uh, um, more than a year out from releasing actual findings? Yeah, you know, uh, they made reference to that PSPS, so you want to find out more, you know, why was not, why was that plan not a good fit? Hawaii. Did they go into all that? They didn't go into that in detail. Um, There are a lot of things that the committee asked, the subcommittee asked all presenters, um, the head of Hawaiian Electric, the State Energy Office, as well as our Public Utilities Commission chair to provide after to the committee. They have 10 days to provide additional information. So we're going to see a lot more come out of this conversation. Um, But one thing that that did come up is that Hawaiian Electric is actually conducting an internal investigation of those of what happened on those days as well. And U.S. Representative Frank Pallone pressed them to make those results public. HECO said that it's cooperating with all ongoing investigations, but it stopped short of committing to release those findings to the public. Interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, the backdrop of this hearing, and and this loomed large for 
folks um, participating in the conversation as well is the imminent government shutdown that we may experience this weekend. Uh, lawmakers were pledging their support for Maui while disaster aid is being halted across the country. And that irony was not lost on some li- lawmakers present at the hearing. Here's U.S. Representative Kathy Castor of Florida. This is the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Ian that hit southwest Florida where 150 people died, over, over 50 drowned because of storm surge. Um, so they're still recovering too, as people in Puerto Rico are. Just, just a couple of months ago, Hurricane Idalia hit, it, it hit Rep Kamek's district, but in my area, I still have people who are flooded out that have all of their belongings in pods out on the street. And what caught my attention this morning on the front page of my hometown newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times, says FEMA has paused Florida aid. We just cannot afford this shutdown. You can hear the representative holding up that paper in the session, and you can hear the concern in her voice for her constituents and others across the country of what it means for folks who are experiencing the long-term effects of disaster. Right, and we're still grappling with it here, and we've been assured that FEMA and all that is going to continue here? Yes, we have been assured by Senator Schatz that the money for our uh, response has been allocated already. We do have access to that, and that will not be affected by a shutdown. But we are also looking at our deadline for our federal uh, disaster declaration. We have 60 days from when it was declared on August 10th for FEMA aid um, to be applied for. And uh, we have not gotten a response at Hawaii Public Radio from the governor about whether or not they're looking to renew that yet. All right. Okay. But thank you so much, Savannah. Thank Thanks you. for getting up early. <laughs> <laughs> that was HBR Savannah Harriman-Pote, who is keeping an eye on Maui welfare fallout now playing out in our nation's capital. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. If you have past success with building and nurturing relationships with donors, we've got the job opportunity for you. HPR is hiring for a major and planned giving manager. This position will be the main point of contact for HPR's major donors and will help the station grow our donor base. Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Well, it is high school football season, which means families and fans will be spending their Friday nights and Saturdays cheering on their favorite players or schools at many of the unique football fields across the island. Places like Waianae High School's Raymond Torrey Field, which sits close to both the shoreline and the mountains and has some of the most spectacular views at any sports venue. In fact, it was in the running for the most beautiful high school football field in the country in 2021, or Kamehameha Schools, uh, Kunui Akea Stadium, high atop the Kapalama hillside, which overlooks much of Honolulu. Or there's Roosevelt High School Stadium, named for a hard-nosed former coach who led his team to three straight ILH football championships from 1955 to 1957, a feat unmatched in those days. 
In fact, for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of that stadium. Uh, Here's a hint. His nickname may remind you of a clock. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. It is now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton is with us to talk about West Maui's reopening to visitors. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Well, I know that uh, I think that the Hawaii Tourism Authority is meeting uh, this morning. You know, uh, obviously this is top of mind. Yeah, it is top of mind. And again, the board of the Tourism Authority um, approved spending $2.5 million uh, for uh, tourism marketing to to market uh, West Maui. Uh, It's an important step for uh, the tourism industry there. It's been largely shut down. They've been losing, I don't know, an estimated $15 million um, a day. And it's quite a um, quite a blow to the community. Yeah, and I know that the governor has said that he would really like to keep to the October 8th reopening day, uh, you know, to invite visitors to come back in, whether you come from, you know, the neighbor islands or from uh, the mainland or abroad. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Um, just a small correction. It's $13 million a day is the estimate of lost uh, revenue. But yes, the, the governor wants to stick with the plan. The mayor is uh, sticking with the plan, but adapting it a bit, saying uh, they want to do it in phases, and they'll do a couple of uh, areas and properties at a time, uh, see how it goes, and then add more. But yeah, generally, the idea is to start on October 8th. The question is how to get the people here. Um, and how to get people to come in a way that's responsible, that the community will accept. You know, there are a lot of people who don't really want tourists at all. Uh, some who say they don't want tourists, but or they want tourists, but now's not the time. Uh, the question is how, how to get people to come responsibly. Yes, and I know those in the uh, visitor industry, you know, we had talked with uh, uh, Jerry Gibson with the Hotel Alliance, and he was saying, well, we don't want an economic disaster on top of this natural disaster. And so they are really hoping that they can fill some of those hotel rooms uh, that are available, you know, in the timeshare units. Well, that's right. And again, the chief marketing officer for Hawaii Tourism Authority, Kalani Ka'ana'ana, uh, said the same thing. They said, you know, we don't want this secondary disaster, um, an economic disaster. Uh, so the question is how, how to get people to come. Uh, we spoke to Jerry Gibson as well. He said, look, the uh, bookings are just not happening right now. They're not happening as fast as people want or need. And so the question is how can they happen? Yeah, and, and uh, I know that the governor uh, talked about uh, Malama Maui, right, as part of the campaign, uh, just to get people to come, but to be sensitive, to be, I guess I heard the word kind, yeah, that's the idea, to get people to come, to be kind, you know, with the messages that are being sent out both by the Hawaii Tourism Authority and by uh, private companies like Hawaiian Airlines really is that message, you know, come here, this is our community, we really want you here, but please come, support the small businesses, uh, but be kind. And your article talks about how Hawaiian Air is using some of its employees to get across that message. Yeah, that's right. They have a series of uh, videos. They're very nice. What's interesting about the videos is the employees, these, you know, flight attendant and um, uh, a captain of one of the big uh, uh, Airbus planes, they go and they talk to the people at the businesses where they like to go. And it's, it, it, they're very nice because, again, they're talking to the actual people they interact with. Um, and it, it seems effective. Yes, I mean, you do want them to be cognizant of uh, people are still hurting. Uh, it's, you know, only going to be two months since this happened, and, and people are still kind of in shock. No, that's exactly right, including a lot of the workers, too. So this is another uh, another factor. And uh, they spoke to someone uh, recently. There was a big uh, 
webinar with dozens of tourism executives there talking to someone from New Orleans who helped the recovery after Katrina. And, you know, she was sharing stories as well, saying, look, you know, there's certain things you just can't do. It's not going to be acceptable for people. And, you know, for instance, uh, again, we, the folks at Hawaii Tourism Authority said, for example, you know, they're not going to be tour buses or shuttles going into Lahaina so people can see what happened, even though they might want to. Yeah, I think the whole thing is, you know, put yourself in their shoes, which you want to be gawked at and have your picture taken, you know, by a flood of tourists and maybe not. No, that's exactly right. So, again, it, 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 it might seem a little inaccurate to say that they're op- they're trying to market a disaster area as a tourist destination. Um, but that's kind of what's happening. All right. OK, well, thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you. That was reporter Stuart Yerton with today's reality check. Uh, read that story at civilbeat.org. This week, the Hokulea sailed into San Francisco Bay only to announce it will cut short its circumnavigation journey in December to return home to Hawaii. HPR reporter Kube Hiraishi joins us to talk about the reasons why. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. We've been tracking uh, Hokulea's Mwananuiakia voyage since they launched in Alaska back in June. Everyone's, our listeners are familiar. Every Tuesday, I'll check in with the crew and our audience hears about it the next day. Uh, but once the wildfires hit West Maui, I remember getting that call Polynesian Voyaging Society CEO and pool navigator Nainoa Thompson you know we're on the phone a good half hour and you could hear it in his voice he knew Hokulea had to come home but there was a lot of moving parts involved in terms of the amount of crew members and volunteers who were already scheduled to uh, do every leg of this voyage, right? And then also sponsorships and, and supporters. So took a lot to change that sail plan. But the decision was made in part to bring a sense of hope and healing to the Ohanava'a, the voyaging family there in Lahaina, a place Anainoa called a voyaging powerhouse. Hokulea has been the foundation for Hawaii since 1976. It's what Hokulea has done for the people of Hawaii, the renaissances that it has started and continues to uh, do today, we need that. Lahaina needs that um, more than ever. And the fact that they're coming home and coming to Lahaina, I'm hoping it can help us find a way to rebuild Lahaina. And so I look forward to seeing Hokulea and all the voyaging canoes, Hikianalia, Makali, and Moikia on the shores of Lahaina all together. That was the voice of Lahaina native and Hokulea captain Archie Kalepa, who's been instrumental in leading his community in these relief and recovery efforts, uh, reacting to that idea of the announcement of Hokulea coming home. Uh, right now, he is planning, or the community, I should say, is planning for Hokulea's arrival on the shores of Lahaina January 20th. Uh, they're weather permitting, I should say, as they always say in these announcements about our double canoes. But uh, he is planning a march from the Lahaina Bypass Road down to Launiu Poco Beach Park, where all of Hawaii's voyaging canoes, as Kalepa had mentioned, will be waiting for the people to arrive to the shoreline. That would be a powerful image. Oh, my gosh. Right. And it's funny because Kalepa had said, you know, usually we're all on land waiting for the canoes to come in. But in this particular instance, they're going to have the canoes come in, wait ashore while, or wait uh, uh, right outside shore while the people come to the shore and meet them. Uh, but getting back to uh, Nainoa talking about, Kalepa is one of, Archie Kalepa, one of uh, the uh, powerhouses, I should say, captains there uh, for Hokulea in Lahaina, but many have come from this community and canoes as well. Canoes are built there, they're constructed there, they were launched there. And over the years, great captains have come from that place, Abraham Snake I.E. and Archie Kalepa, Timmy Gillum, and great navigators. Uh, and the great pole navigator, uh, Kalepa Babayan, and his daughter, Kala. This is a voyaging powerhouse, and therefore it's a part of our whole voyaging family. And so. 
Hokulea needs to come home because I believe the family is going to need the canoe. And the canoe is going to need the family. Hokulea and her crew, as you mentioned, uh, is currently in San Francisco for leg seven of the Mwananuyakia voyage. They're not going to just cut it dry right now. Uh, they are going to head down along the coast to San Diego and then uh, make that right turn towards Hawaii and come home, as you mentioned, in late December. Uh, but this four-year global educational campaign, Mwananuyakia, has sought to raise awareness and urgency around the need to take better care of the earth amidst this sort of climate crisis. Thompson says uh, there's no timeline yet for resuming the voyage, but he knows it needs to be completed. In fact, another contributing factor to Hokulea's homecoming was climate uncertainty. We don't know what the risk is going to be anymore because the, the heat in the ocean, especially near the equatorial waters where we live, is really a fuel for, for big storms, primarily hurricanes. So we don't know whether um, voyaging in that kind of condition of hot earth plus El Nino is even safe. The job of the navigator is to protect that canoe and those who sail it. And the way they do that is to watch nature and make decisions on when it's time to go, when it's not time to go. And every decision, at least big ones, have to be right unless things go terribly wrong. And there's so much planning that goes into a, a trip like this. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I, I don't know uh, if even the sponsorship uh, aspect uh, what played a part in this, right? Because right. they need money to To change voyages. the sale plan, exactly. And, and the current plan right now, they've received a lot of support, of course, um, from those in the business community here who have uh, been following the voyage as well. Uh, but the current homecoming plan is for Hokulea to sail to Sand Island. Hikianalia will be shipped up to Los Angeles and escort Hokulea home uh, before heading to Lahaina, as we mentioned, in January. Yeah, I know, because you, you got to think, well, this is nice to do, uh, but do we need to do it now? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you regroup? And, and maybe a lot of the money from the sponsors maybe went toward Maui. You know, just all these decisions that weigh on uh, these uh, organizers. But thank you so much, Kuve. That was HPR's Kuve Hiraishi, who's been tracking the voyaging canoe Hokulea in this latest leg around the Pacific. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Vasavi Kumar, author of Say It Out Loud. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about using the power of your voice to reframe negative self-talk. Sunday at 11. Many Asian cultures observe the Harvest Moon Festival this time of the year. Korea Today kicks off the three-day observance of Chuseok, the Mid-Autumn Harvest Festival. To better understand this ancient holiday, the conversation Stephanie Han explores the uh, uh, Korean tradition of shamanism. 71% of Korean Americans practice Christianity, but a 2021 Korean Gallup poll showed that 60% of the Korean population had no religious belief, and the rest claim a Buddhist, Confucian, Christian, or other kind of belief. Shamanism or Muism is a religious practice indigenous to the Korean Peninsula. Today, we'll meet two shaman or mudong, healers and spiritual practitioners. Jennifer Kim, or Mudang Jen, is the founder of an easing Musok Life, and Dohee Lee, founder of Puri Arts, is a Mudang who follows the Cheju Island tradition, and she's also a Korean traditional dancer and musician. First up, Jennifer Kim. So Korean shamans, Budangs, are mostly women. Nowadays, in more modern times, 
there's men involved and, you know, and queer folks and people who are non-binary and things of that nature. But mostly in older times, the Korean shamans known as Budangs were often women. And the narrative around shamans goes to say that these women had a calling, that the calling is through a shamanic illness or a spirit illness known as shimpyong. Shin means spirit, Kyung means illness, and it literally, it means that someone who's afflicted by the spirits, and everyone has different shamanic illnesses, and it could look different from person to person, but it was believed that a person is being harassed by spirits, or they are being attacked by spirits because they have a calling. Korean shamanism is really about working with the nature, because a lot of times, um, when we're looking at the pantheon of Korean gods, spirits, and deities, a lot of the spirits and gods and deities are guardians of nature. For example, Sanshin, which is the mountain god, is the guardian of mountain and the earth. And Yowang, the dragon king, is the guardian of the waters, the rivers, and the lakes and the rain. So a lot of the spirits that we work with are working with the deities or the guardians of nature, spirits of our home, land spirits, earth spirits, and also spirits that are blood and non-blood ancestors as well. Why is this mm-hmm. ancient wisdom possibly relevant today? And what is truly different about it? I feel that the rituals or the ceremony spaces of Vudangs were always there for the people. A lot of times ceremony spaces was a space where people felt safe to come out and share their grievances, the grievances towards how to what was happening in their lives or some of the things, or maybe because of society or maybe something political. It was always a space to share and to express our hunt, our grief. And because of that, I feel that shamanism could be used as a political vehicle too, because I know that in the 70s or the 80s, Madangu, which is a type of ceremony, It was used as a vehicle to power the voices of protesters with the the military regime of Korea back then. Because it's that the ceremony or the rituals or what shamans do is supposed to amplify the voices of the people. Back in the Three Kingdom period, it was something that everybody believed in, regardless of class, rank, or, you know, if you were a higher noble or not, or just a normal person. But during the Chosen Dynasty, um, Shamanism became the religion or the belief of the common folk. The aristocrats or everyone who was an elite either followed a different type of belief system or more sophisticated, like Buddhism or Confucianism. Shamanism has always been, for the people, a space where people come to express their anger, their grief, their sadness, and it was always there to amplify the power of the people and to empower the people. So. I think it's great that shamanism could be this multi-faceted tool or vehicle that could be there to support people in different movements, whether it's a feminist movement or a movement that's there for environmental protection and change or just civil rights. It's a great vehicle to help amplify the voices, to give space to the voices, and to give strength to the voices by bringing in our spirits and our ancestors and calling in the energies of the land. Shamanism also in Korean history was always looked down upon because shaman ceremonies gave space and power to the voices like women and especially in Korean in a very patriarchal society that was very male dominant women were didn't not have much like rights or or power to hold their decisions with their lives and shamanism was a way that women was able to empower themselves and regain control Some of the writings that talk about shamans back in the day uh, were written by scholars and they will often criticize how these women in these spaces were acting like men because they didn't, they were not acting like their gendered roles or structures. What I'm trying to say is that through shamanism, women have space to step up, to be the voice and to say and call things out what's wrong with our, you know, what's happening in our society or in these political spaces, environment spaces. I do believe, as with my experience working as a shaman and meeting with people, that our matriarchs are 
so powerful and so important. I mean, I think that nowadays everyone knows the labor and how societies are built off the labor of women in our backs and and the matriarchs of our family. So I think that um, women, in reality, I feel like women were already were. Women are leaders. I mean, this is what a lot of women around the world in many countries and many cultures have always stepped up, whether stepping up to protect our family, protect our neighbor's family, you know, the, the children. I feel like women have always been there to lead and to sh- use our voices to talk about the things that are destroying the world, like, like you know, environment. I first saw Dohi Lee at an event she created for Women Cross DMZ a group dedicated to peace on the Korean Peninsula. She explained her history and how she began. Through the, my art practice, I did a lot of history storytellings through the art. But all the structure that I followed was like in really ritual form. If I'm a person, I don't know anything about it. Just give me yeah. a basic outline. Korean uh, shamanism, you know, in indigenous practice. That's the indigenous practice, right? You know, it doesn't really necessarily, for myself, not putting into religious form because this is just practice towards the land and people and, you know, nature and the weather and all that, how human is related to all the beings. You know, literally, it became the religious format now. In shamanism in Korea, we have a different form like you know how you becoming you know one is the your heritage your mother your grandmother or your family line has a that history so it passed down on you so you becoming the you know doing the this practice but another form is you are becoming just one day you receive kind of having this sickness spiritual sickness that caused some of the finding hard reason why I am sick type. So people go through it and then following this path of becoming the healer. I usually call the shaman as a healer, they're the healer. So that's the really biggest way of you can see who really becoming, you know, following that path. Right. And another, yeah, another way that you can see is men and women, right? In Korea, when we see the, this practice, you see majority of the people who are doing is the woman. So that's another part of the woman as a woman's body, how much we really capable to carrying all those things. And also you talk about the who they are really believe in kind of things, you know, it's a deity, we call it deities. And it depends on which reason you doing this practice is different. The tradition that I'm, you know, still studying and following is Jeju Island, and we believe that there is eighteen thousand of the deities. Wow. <laughs> so ilman pachanshin. Yeah, eighteen thousand. I mean, that's incredible. We cannot even name all that 18,000 of the deities. That right. means very metaphorically, there are so many spirits and deities that really protect us. That's interesting because it also suggests that it is a highly personal practice because somebody mm-hmm. could name a, a deity and the other person has never even heard of it if there's 18,000. Yeah, it's really different from the different regions, too. Were you raised with this kind of thinking or practice? I've been called a lot of times, and even the shamans really told me to, I have to follow this path. And I had it in Korea a lot of times that I didn't want to be, (laughs) honestly. So I was kind of resist a lot. And didn't have my family 
you know, my lineage doesn't have that either. So, so mm. I didn't really want to go that direction, you know. And then when I came here, I found myself with my own sickness and symptoms, you know, all those things guided by the also this shaman from Korea and sharing about what's happening within my body and and that's the kind of what I need to accept, you know, the, the path that I just have to follow. It was easier for me kind of way because the practicing the art is already in the path. Right. So the, the link between artistic expression and creativity mm-hmm. and shamanism is, in other words, quite close. Very close. Yeah, that was very surprised later on. More and more realization comes more bigger that, oh, that's why I did this. Oh, that's why I was doing that kind of things. Yeah. And why do you think this, why is this knowledge, this ancient wisdom of relevance mm-hmm. today? Hmm. I think because um, I'm really learning, you know, kind of realizing a lot that we talk about colonization. You know, when we talk about colonization, it's about the land. You know, who who is colonizing the where, whose land. But in that way, I feel like, you know, when they're colonizing the land, they're colonizing the spirituality too for the land, for the, you know, country, for the humanity, for the community, and for the all the different areas that what we really need to pay attention. And then seeing through the very specific culture, the practice, you know, I want also people to remind themselves, yes, you also have your own culture. We need to connect to our own culture, ancestral practice. Right. That's part of, you know, knowing who we are, our own identity. Korean film, music, beauty, and fashion are on the global stage, but it's the indigenous belief of shamanism that may be of great significance when it comes to politics and colonialism. Korea has a long history of colonial rule, from China to Japan and now the U.S. Shamanism, an indigenous practice led by women, impacts an understanding of civil liberties and Korean peace on the peninsula. That was HBR Stephanie Han talking with Jennifer Kim and Dohi Lee to Mudang, or Korean shaman, about this indigenous practice. Uh, uh, the Mudang would often take part in ceremonies around this time of year of the harvest, praying for a good harvest. And if you are looking to mark the Fall Harvest Moon Festival, you can head down to Chinatown Friday and Saturday. There are events scheduled. Grab a moon cake to celebrate. Now it's time to tackle the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we asked you to name the Central Oahu Football Stadium named after a beloved former Roosevelt High School football coach. This coach's pursuit of perfection left an indelible mark on his players, with many of them becoming educators, attorneys, and successful businessmen. Some say the success of his football teams was directly linked to his time as the school's track coach because of his ability to convince the school's fastest sprinters, to also play on the gridiron. We are talking about Edmund Tiki Vasconcelos, the namesake of Roosevelt's football stadium, and the answer to today's backyard quiz. Vasconcelos got his nickname while doing his daily chore growing up, feeding the chickens. When he did it, he would call out, tick, 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 as you might imagine. His brothers found this amusing and gave it to him as a nickname. And boy, I can relate. That was my chore growing up, feeding the chickens. And our winner today, Andre Tatibouet from Waikiki. It's so nice to hear your name again. Andre, hope all is well with you. And thank you for calling in. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, the Kahala Hotel and Resort, and Dr. Kimmy Caswell and Caswell Orthodontics. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stunning costumes, modern dance, and environmental issues come together this Friday. Oh My Goddess is the Iona Contemporary Dance Theater's new production. It showcases modern representations of four powerful Hawaii goddesses, Pele, Hiyaka, Namaka, and Poliahu. Cheryl Flaherty is Iona's artistic director. She says the production reflects on the relationship between culture and nature. The Conversations, Russell Subiono talked to Flaherty about the theater's first production in eight years. Well, it's an interesting style of performance for us, which we do often, which is a gallery style performance. So the dancers are each set up on their own 20 foot by 20 foot dance floor, which is on the same level as the audience. So the audience moves around throughout the whole performance as if they're in an art gallery, but the art is alive. And dancing, there's one musical score, which is gorgeous, written by David Kawahikawa, featuring star Kalahiki. And they've done such a beautiful job with it. And it features prose from my script writer of many years, Victoria Nolani Nubel. Mm -hmm. And so that sound is going and the lighting is gorgeous. And you may have a goddess interact with you from time to time because you can step right up to the edge of the stage, which is a dance floor. So it's not necessarily like a traditional dance performance where you're sitting in a theater and you're watching it happen on stage. Yes, our only voice is Star. And so we've recorded her singing. She did a lot of ad-lib singing. She also sung some of what Nalani wrote. And she also speaks some of the, the lines. And what I asked Nalani to do was rewrite the myths in her own words. And she ended up writing prose, which was perfect because it transferred to the music beautifully. And so you hear the story, you see the story. The dancers actually don't speak. So if they come up to you, they'll speak with their hands or their body. When I think about the original idea for this performance, where did that come from? What were you interested in saying through this production? Well, it's very costume-based. So I was inspired by the world of wearable art that is from New Zealand that came to the Bishop Museum. And it's a lot of amazing costumes that are made by artisans all over the world. And they just blow your mind. So I went to that many times. I went with my lead seamstress, Dee Laris. And I looked at Dee and I said, we could make things like this, you know. And so we decided that we wanted to make the biggest costumes and most grand and intricate costumes we've ever made. And then, you know, I don't really do Hawaiian-based work. Work is always mythological, and I draw from the myths of different cultures. But it's been since 97 when I did Hawaiian Myths and Legends that I've done a Hawaiian-based work. And I feel like, I don't know, I just felt like now was the time with the whole Hawaiian culture coming back and the olelo and all of that, I felt like this is the right time. So I'm going to make these giant costumes be these goddesses. And my love for the female spirit is a lot to do with that, too. So it's really marrying, you know, my love for costume design, Hawaiian mythology, nature, and the feminine. When we think about art, a lot of times artists like to put a message into their art and, and they use it as an avenue for addressing larger social issues. From what I've read... Among the themes the production will touch on is climate change. Why was it important to weave that into the story? Well, going back to Hawaiian mythology, what I love so much about Hawaiian mythology is the relationship between the gods and goddesses and nature. They are personifications of nature. And when we honor these gods and goddesses, we're essentially honoring nature. And it is time past due time to honor nature, especially with the climate change. And there's so many things going on around the world, but also in Hawaii and the, you know, the lovely Hi'iaka's ohia forest, uh, the trees all have this rapid ohia death. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't know if that's due to climate change, quite honestly, probably not, but that's just huge significance for the culture of Hawaii. And it's almost like the goddess is ill in a way or something like that, because that, that tree is so synonymous with Hiyaka. You know, and then there's a lot of interesting things going on on Mauna Kea right now. You know, so it's kind of interesting that I drew my first drawing of Poliahu's costume to be a warrior with a feather cape, which we ended up making out of tulle instead of feathers. And I thought, you know, why is this coming out like this? Well, there's kind of a war going on on Mauna Kea. And that's her domain now, you know. So her costume references the telescopes that are up there because they're up there. They're part of her her domain, you know, and it's part of what this whole dispute is about. So I ended up making that piece really as a, a healing for the situation on Mauna Kea. And I see her as a peaceful warrior. And she wants to, you know, resolve this and make things right you know, for her own Mauna. Going back to the costumes, I saw the video on Iona's Facebook page. It looked like a kind of like a preview video of the performance. It was a woman in a, what looked like a big ballroom gown, but the gown in the design of a volcano. I mean, the, the top of it was black and then the, the skirt part of it had colors in an arrangement that looked like lava flowing out of a volcano. Can you talk a little bit more about your costume design, about your costume team? I read that fashion designer Kini Zamora was on the team. How much time do you put into making the costumes? Way too much. (laughs) (laughs) We set out to do this show. We created the first costume for Namaka Okahai in 2019. Mm -hmm. And it was premiered before a concert that the symphony did of a new work about the Hokulea. And so we had one of my donors was one of their donors, and she helped us get that first costume out. So since that time, we've been working on the other three. And when you decide to make an eight-foot diameter cinder cone skirt for Pele, which is what you're referring to, oh, there's a lot involved in that. And how does the dancer support it? And, And how do you keep it that large? And so we ended up doing a lot of work on the structure of her costume before we even got to the lava. And it's eight different panels that have separating zippers that zip up together so that we can separate each panel and store it separately because you're not going to hang up an eight-foot diameter skirt on a hanger. So the structure of the costume was a lot. And I'm incorporating aspects of each myth into each costume. So Pele, yes, the bottom of her skirt is all these amazing fabrics that I found in New York. I like to go fabric shopping in New York that have monofilaments in them. And you can shape them and they hold their shape like lava. And I found this lace that looks like uh, uh, lava. And I found this black velvet that looks like pohoi hoi. So I did good with the shopping. So anyway, that's her skirt. But then as we move up from the natural lava into the bodice, I decided to go with these stories of Pele showing up at the volcano house, showing up at someone's funeral. And these are from my childhood um, in Victorian dress. And she lays a flower on the casket and then she disappears like smoke. I decided to go with that Victorian feeling. And I also am wanting the costumes to be very contemporary so that we're sort of re-envisioning Pele and Hiyaka and all of them today as a statement that they are still alive, that they're not just something that existed in ancient Hawaii. These goddesses, Pele and Hiyaka in particular, are with us. I mean, Pele is erupting right now and people won't even say the volcano's erupting. They'll say Pele is erupting, right? So I went from that Victorian look into a goth look. So I'm incorporating, and then I went into a superhero. So Pele to me is a goth superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And that's her contemporary look. And I really wanted the idea of the older woman. Her hair is made out of glass and it turns from black into white. So I wanted this old woman representation of Pele to be part of the costume because I love that how she shapeshifts and goes from the young beauty to the old crone. There's a lot of artistry happening with this performance. There's there's the dance, there's the costumes, 
there's the music, there's the prose. When you put all of that together and you invite the audience in to take in the performance, what do you hope that audience will take away from the dance production? Well, I think it's always my mission with all of my work to have all of those elements synergize together to create a feeling for the audience and to open their hearts and to have like a soul opening. You know, when you see something really beautiful or stunning and you get chicken skin and you're like, you know, you shift. I think you shift your soul really shifts to a higher level. And I think that's one of the things that art does. It makes you have more awareness. It makes you have an aha moment, you know? And I think those are part of the soul's growth. So, you know, I hope that everyone maybe sheds a tear here or there, or, you know, just feels like, wow, I want them to walk out and say, oh my goddess. (laughs) Cheryl, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Russell. That was Iona Contemporary Dance Theater's Cheryl Faraday talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. The new production, Oh My Goddess, runs from September 29th through October 1st at the Hawaii Convention Center. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. does it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanaho show around fall reads. Got a favorite song or chant about Maui? Share it with us as we're planning an Aloha Friday show around Mele and Oli. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something that you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts or on our website online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.